This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. Uh, this is episode 18 of the podcast of CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, uh, in which we look at big issues of the day in the news and beyond and see why they're relevant to philanthropy and the work of charities. Uh, I'm your host, Rod Davis, um, and this episode 18 is about philanthropy and technology. Now, some of you uh, might immediately object that all I ever seem to do is talk about philanthropy and technology, uh, and in a way that's a fair cop. Um, but instead of talking about specific technologies or their applications to particular themes, as we've done in previous podcasts, today I want to look in the round at the question of the role that philanthropy plays in supporting technology, in harnessing technology for social good, uh, and the role it can play in uh, addressing some of the more negative aspects of the impact of technology. So let's kick off by looking uh, at the ways in which philanthropy can support technology. I think this is kind of interesting question. And what we're talking about here is supporting technology for technology's own sake, rather than specific applications of technology to a social problem. And it might seem like uh, an odd thing, in a way, to be suggesting that um, philanthropy should be doing this, because it kind of presupposes that uh, technology is in itself a social good or a force for social progress, and there'd definitely be some people who might challenge that assumption. But historically, it is something that a lot of forward-thinking philanthropists and philanthropic organisations have done. For instance, there's an absolutely uh, fascinating uh, history of the work of the Rockefeller Foundation um, in the US, which um, in the 1930s and through the war and, and the period after the war, um, supported uh, basic scientific research through its natural sciences department, which was headed by a man called Warren Weaver, uh, who rather wonderfully described himself as the uh, chief philanthropoid uh, as his job title, which is definitely something that I'd like to steal for the future. But Weaver was himself a, a very eminent mathematician um, who'd actually collaborated with uh, Claude Shannon on his seminal work on um, uh, information communication theory. But in his work at philanthropy, he took the lead in um, making kind of very um, speculative bets on people working in areas of science that had, you know, seemingly no application whatsoever at that point, but many of which sort of subsequently paid off enormously in terms of uh, kind of technological progress. So, for instance, I mean, during the war period, uh, Rockefeller Foundation played a huge role in supporting uh, or offering grants that could help um, uh, Jewish scientists and mathematicians and others who were obviously being persecuted by the Nazis in Europe to escape and come over um, to the US. Uh, for instance, the Rockefeller Foundation actually paid the salary of Kurt Girdle, uh for a number of years at the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study. And uh, having studied quite a lot of Girdle at university, I can honestly say that it's quite difficult to see the practical applications of a lot of the work that Gödel did 
although we are now starting to see that in an age of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. So it was a very, very long-term bet. On the artificial intelligence front, um, Rockefeller also in the 1950s um, provided the funding for something called the Dartmouth Conference, which was a, a meeting of uh, computer scientists and mathematicians that has proven to be absolutely seminal in the uh, the later development of artificial intelligence and actually was the place that the grant application for that uh, conference is the first recorded instance of the term artificial intelligence so rockefeller played a massive role in in supporting many of the technological and scientific developments that we've seen today and this is you know it's still something that we see today kind of interplay of uh, philanthropy and technology I mean, one interesting uh, use uh, or one interesting case is around uh, the open source movement. So this is a kind of development of softwares and technologies uh, on a kind of collaborative basis where the, the code is open and not owned by anyone. And the idea is that people sort of work together to develop them um, and we've seen this around things like linux the operating system uh, mozilla um, who who produced firefox the web browser uh, they are all open source and kind of owned by a foundation usually um, and there's strong movements of people who support those philanthropically on the basis that they think they're a social good you know it doesn't quite have to be that purely lacking in in supposed self-interest either i think there's there's a very interesting space uh, in which um, philanthropists are individuals are supporting the development of technologies um, that are quite far into the future but their motivations for doing so are sort of strange combination of uh, philanthropy and a belief in the transformative power of technology and a desire to make lots and lots of money so you know someone like Elon Musk obviously is supporting the work of Tesla and SpaceX in you know in autonomous vehicles and space exploration and, and colonies on other planets, um, partly because he believes that this is in the long term interest of humanity and he has a grand vision, uh, but also uh, more cynically, if any one of these technologies pays off, uh, he's likely to have had a, an enormous first mover advantage and be phenomenally wealthy, even more so than he already is um, in that situation. And the same can be said of the the philanthropic interests of people like Larry Page, the Google founder, or the um, tech investor Yuri Milner, who's put lots of money into space exploration. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that grey area between very, very high risk, early stage investment and philanthropy. Um, but it kind of, I think it raises some interesting questions um, about where philanthropy stops and investment starts. Um, and kind of what the right degree of self-interest is but you know as a source of money for funding innovation uh, it seems at the moment to be be a very kind of valuable pool so maybe we should just let people get on with it um, so in the next section uh, I'm going to go on to look at the ways in which philanthropy itself has harnessed technology to try and deliver uh, on its mission uh, and there's some great examples of that so I'll see you in a minute Okay, so we're back for the second section. Um, and as I said before the break, uh, in this section, I just want to have a bit of a think through the ways in which uh, philanthropy uh, and kind of charities and nonprofits have themselves harnessed technology to further their missions. 
So this is the kind of the idea behind the whole tech for good movement. So if you go on the internet and Google tech for good, you'll find all sorts of examples of brilliant projects where people are using new and existing technologies in clever ways to try and kind of address social and environmental challenges. You know, for instance, around a technology like uh, artificial intelligence, um, as an example of the Lindbergh Foundation in the US is working uh, with a, an AI company called Neurala, and they have established a system of drones flying over game reserves in Africa. And then they're using machine learning to um, uh, analyze the, the video data that's coming back from those drones in, in real time. And they've managed to determine much more effective ways of predicting where poachers will be so that they can get to those locations before the event and kind of move move the animals out of the way and, and take more of a preventative approach. Um, similarly, there are kind of uses of AI to enable live translation. Uh, the Children's Society, I think, for instance, in the UK has been working um, and it's Microsoft um, and kind of Skype um, in-call translation uh, to allow them to work with young people uh, who for whom English isn't their first language or who don't speak English and offer them a much better level of service without having to always go out and, and find professional translators, which is difficult and can be very expensive. I think, you know, there are lots of examples of people using the internet more broadly um, uh, to enable uh, kind of furtherment of, of social causes, whether that is around kind of offering services um, and advice services for instance that are available um, much more cheaply and easily and conveniently so you know if you offer a service uh, via kind of web information or nowadays possibly even via an AI powered chatbot uh, people can access it when they want rather than when you're able to employ somebody to do it so that might be at 3 a.m in the morning when they're having um, you know, a suicidal episode or something like that. And that is the moment at which they, they need to be able to reach out and get that advice. So actually the technology allows that to be done. I think just as a as a quick aside, because I think it's fun, you know, the the use of technology um by philanthropic organizations to further their social mission, as with every other thing uh in philanthropy, and you're probably sick of me bringing this up already if you've listened to this podcast before, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, so there's a great example um, from the Victorian era of a thing called the Society for Superseding the Work of Climbing Boys, which wasn't about stopping people on, on climbing frames acting naughtily or anything like that. It was about chimney sweeps. So climbing boys were Victorian chimney sweeps and they suffered horrible working conditions and they were often orphans and they were bought up by unscrupulous men uh, who ran these companies for chimney sweeps and they would be sent up uh, into the to climb these chimneys with uh, you know filled with soot um and it was absolutely inhumane and this this uh, philanthropic society was set up to try and find ways of um changing legislation and policy and public opinion so that these children wouldn't be forced to work in that way anymore um but one of the interesting and innovative things that they did was to basically issue a challenge prize almost like the the x prize where they offered a, a sum of money for anyone who could come up with an automated um, chimney sweeper. Um, and somebody did, uh, and they, they won that prize, and they actually built uh, the machine um, and then basically went out you know, to make a, a kind of campaigning ask, which is 
you know, if this machine is available, why would you be sending children up your chimneys instead of just uh, using this machine? Unfortunately, the the problem they ran into was a much more kind of uh, old fashioned human one, which was there. They did have a lot of um, success. And actually, in the House of Commons, their approach worked very well. Um, it stalled somewhat in the House of Lords because um, cynically, uh, a lot of the people in the Lords at that time lived in extremely large uh, mansions in the countryside that had lots of chimneys uh, and probably uh, had an interest in maintaining the cheapest possible way of uh, of, uh, of cleaning them. But that's something of an aside. So as we've seen there, philanthropy has a long and rich history also of kind of looking for new innovations in technology and putting them to use for for social good. And that's something that continues to this day. And I think, you know, it's there's definitely the more that can be done on that front, the better. And there's some great examples out there. In the, the final section, we're just going to come on to look at the more negative aspect, which is what role can philanthropy and charitable organisations play in addressing some of the downsides of new technologies uh, when they occur? So back in a minute. Okay, so we're back for the final section. Um, and as promised, in this section, we're going to look at the role that philanthropy uh, has and can play in the future. Um, in combating some of the the kind of the negative uh, consequences of new technologies so we hear a lot about um, how transformative and great uh, new technologies are and particularly in the context of charities the talk is often around kind of tech for good and the ways in which um, technology can be put to use for, for social good but increasingly, I think we're aware that with a lot of these technologies, there are uh, negative consequences if we don't develop the technologies in the right way. So, for instance, around artificial intelligence um, at the moment, there's been a lot of focus on things like the the way in which automation could affect the workplace and the impact that that might have um, on the future of work and people how people would fare in a world uh, without work. Similarly, um, in terms of the the algorithms that actually underpin um, a lot of uh, artificial intelligence processes themselves, there's a growing awareness that whilst those algorithms themselves are are not biased, um, they are written by human beings who uh, approach most problems with a with a set of preconceptions, and also when they act on data sets that kind of contain historical statistical bias they come to reflect those biases and actually strengthen them over time. So there are lots of uh, cases of this already. For instance, in um, the uh, legal system in the US, they applied uh, algorithmic processes to determining bail conditions uh, for people who were, were in court. Uh, and historically, young black men had been you know, harshly penalized and set much more stringent bail conditions, and this was reflected in the data and then when the algorithms went to work on that data, they basically got very racist very quickly, which is not a kind of qualitative judgment on the part of the algorithm, obviously. It's just that the data that it has to work on tells it that those people have historically been seen as more likely to to skip bail and therefore should be set higher bail conditions, whether or not that is a reflection of kind of societal prejudice or actual uh, kind of real evidence. Um, and we see this, I think, in a lot of ways. So I think there's an awareness that this problem of algorithmic bias, particularly when kind of complex, often quite obscure black box algorithms are coming to make decisions about 
lots of different aspects of our life, these need to be addressed. Um, in actual fact, I think by the time we put this podcast out, um, the uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May will have given a speech at the uh, this year's annual uh, World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, um, where she will announce the creation of a centre for data ethics, so an, an oversight body for the development of AI in the UK, which follows on from recommendations from a government-commissioned report last year. And this is something that, that I've written about and we at CAF have talked about, which is you know, I absolutely agree with the need for those bodies. And I think there is a strong argument that charities and philanthropists and philanthropic organisations should have an important role in those bodies, not because they are necessarily experts on the technology or on artificial intelligence, um, but almost precisely because they're not. Um, I don't think that those debates should be limited to people who have the technical expertise when they will uh, potentially affect all of our lives very profoundly. And given that charities and philanthropic organisations often exist to represent some of the most marginalised people and communities in societies, and those are the, precisely the people and communities who are probably going to be worst affected by things like algorithmic bias... I think charities need to be at the table so they can speak up on behalf of of those um, beneficiaries. I think there are there are other potential areas in which um, there are going to be new problems created by technology that will uh, pose new challenges for charities and where they can play a role. Um, and just some examples of those, I think, around the the kind of uh, the growing usage of um, things like virtual and augmented reality there is already a kind of early indications that there are potential downsides um, in terms of the impact on people's real world social interactions there's some evidence that people who spend a long time in virtual environments suffer a kind of dissociative identity disorder so they kind of lose sight of who they are and it makes sense in a way if you're going into operate in a virtual environment precisely because you want to be freed from the kind of rules and constraints of the real world if you spend a lot of time in that environment there's a question about what impact that has on your ways of thinking and and uh, how you kind of interact with others when you come out of that real world um, and you know this may mean some quite radical changes for charities and philanthropic organizations in the future i mean it may be that they have to specifically employ people to go into those virtual environments in order to interact with people who need help. So there's going to be, you know, kind of virtual reality outreach workers will be a, a whole new job in the in the charity sector. I think also, um, you know, kind of at a big societal level, there are challenges like the one already mentioned about uh, automation and the impact of artificial intelligence on the workplace. Um, you know, we, we now know or we're told that it's not just blue collar traditional manual jobs that are under threat, but a lot of traditional uh, white collar and knowledge jobs. Although, you know, fingers crossed, people who work in uh, philanthropy and voluntary sector policy are safe for a little while, hopefully. In this scenario, um, we're, you know, a lot of people are projecting that there was going to be a transition to a kind of post work world or where, you know, a much smaller number of people are working in a traditional sense. And I think philanthropy could have a huge role to play here, both in kind of managing the transition for people um, and, and helping you know them, uh, beneficiaries who are finding themselves having to adapt to a world without work, um, also to trying to kind of address some of the inequalities that might come around. Um, you know, we're already there's a lot of wealth um, and income inequality in the world, but if you add into the mix 
inequality between people who still work and those who don't and even inequality between people who own the technology and those who don't um these problems could get much more severe and also philanthropy in itself could be part of the solution it, it, one of the challenges i think in a post work world is going to be the loss of that sense of purpose that comes with work because our sense of identity and self-worth is so bound up with ideas of being economically useful and productive that if that's no longer open to most of us i think we're all going to feel pretty listless and and struggle to to find meaning um and actually you know voluntary work and a kind of new flourishing of philanthropic activity could be one route to to give people some of that sense of purpose so i think you know there are there are all kinds of uh ways in which uh philanthropy might have to to play a role um just another example before before we leave this subject um it's kind of non-digital example uh around um biotech and genetic technology so uh there's a lot of interest at the moment in the application of a technique called crispr which if you haven't heard of it is a gene editing technique which allows you to go into uh the dna of living cells and and alter it so this for the first time offers the um, possibility of addressing uh, kind of genetic defects within living organisms um, and they are starting to to look at the applications of this to human beings now in the first instance that's likely to be used in a kind of tech for good way uh, going back to the second section of this podcast uh, in addressing kind of congenital uh, genetic defects and disorders um, and that could you know be amazingly beneficial for people who suffer all kinds of, of horrible uh, conditions currently but as with any technology it will probably start off in in that way but um, the it's almost certain that it will become a marketized commodity and people will be able to purchase it and that will then mean that people with uh, the relevant means may be able to purchase for themselves genetic improvement and enhancement and then we might have a form of genetic inequality uh, to go along with all the wealth inequality and income inequality where people who can afford it can pay to make themselves live longer or be healthier. And all of a sudden there's an underclass of people who can't afford that and, and find themselves sidelined, um, which is essentially the plot of the film Gattaca, I'm aware. But it, we're actually in a situation where that might come true in the in the future and again this is somewhere you know where charities need to be both kind of cognizant of the danger when they are uh, applying the technology in the first place but also aware of the role they might have to play in addressing some of these challenges if they they do come about so i think having uh, brought us round to uh, radical genetic inequality that's probably enough for, for another episode but it uh, remains only to say uh, thanks uh, again for listening. Um, I'm sorry it's still just me, but I am working on that and hopefully I'll have some news on that in the not too distant future. Uh, if you're interested in the stuff that I've been talking about in the podcast today, um, I'll put some links to all kinds of things that we've written uh, in the show notes. Uh, if you like this kind of stuff and want to read more, check out the Giving Thought pages on the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, send us an email at givingthought at cafonline.org or send out a carrier pigeon um, to an unspecified address if you are terrified of technology and uh, just want to uh, be some kind of new Luddite. That's absolutely fine. Um, and it just remains for me to say thanks very much for listening and see you next time.
Bye.